So this is part two of the Peter Clute story, legendary motor car story podcast. Uh, the first one, if you haven't listened to it, it was great. A lot of early childhood stories, you know, growing up street racing, some some cool stuff in there. Uh, this one a little bit more focused on uh, on growing legendary motor car as a business. Uh, you guys are going to enjoy this one. Give me some feedback. Uh, you know, if you guys want to rate the podcast, share it with anyone who uh, who's going to enjoy this thing. Anyone who's into cars, uh, they'll like this one. Enjoy. A bunch of people who know you, obviously listening to the stories there. Uh, the one story that uh, that you forgot to tell was the time that you, uh, depending on definition, may or may not have stolen a car. Well, that was with Irv. Yeah. yeah. Did, was that in there? I thought we did do that. Oh, I don't think so. No? no I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I thought we did. You need to check. <laughs> I don't think it was in there. It was It was uh, not uh, not an official theft of a car. Right. It was a test drive. Right. Tell, tell the story. Okay. So uh, my older brother, Irv, yeah. your, your uncle, and uh, so he went to look at this Mach 1. And we went to this truck stop or whatever, and the guy was a trucker. Mm. So the car was parked beside his rig, and he opened the, the little hatch, and he had the battery for the car in there and the keys in there. Okay. So we look at the car, and it's a 70 Mach 1. It's a yellow car, stick car, Cleveland car, kind of a cool car. And how old is Irv? 16? No. So I'm 15. He's four years older almost. Okay, so okay. he's so almost So he's 18 19. or 19. Yeah, okay. All right. And, uh, and maybe it was 14. But anyway, he... Uh, the guy fires up the car. We're looking at the car, and Irv's real interested, and he said, I'd like to take it for a test drive. And right. the guy says, no. And he just... Did he give you a reason? Just refused. I think he thought, you know, punk kids, they're not going to buy it, whatever type Joy thing. Joyride or Joy whatever. Joyride, yeah. whatever type thing. So he just refused hmm. to let us drive it, and it was a lot of money for at the time. So he was... Uh, I don't know if I want to buy it. I don't know if it drives good, whatever. So we went there that night, that night because we saw the guy take the battery and the keys out of his truck. Knew exactly how we do it. Exactly how the operation worked. So we went back that night and uh, were you guys nervous? Uh, sure. <laughs> we put the battery in. Irv took it for a test drive, and like we're the lookout, me and Bob. Yeah. We're, the, we're the lookout, <laughs> making sure he puts it back in the spot. We put the battery back in the thing, the keys. The guy would never know. And the next day, or he bought the car. Wow. So, and the guy didn't know at all. The guy had no idea. Wow. No idea. But that's that's why I always say it's funny how life can take those forks in the road, mm. and you know you think just it could have been just unlucky a cop driving by here's three kids stealing a car right and you know yeah we were just taking it for a test drive i don't think it would have we, flown no no not at no. all and just life could have changed dramatically yeah yeah that's uh, funny how that goes the mm -hmm. one other story uh that i remember and you, you you kind of have a couple of these stories you know maybe when i started delivering cars or accidentally scratched a car around the shop or something you'd you'd make me feel better by saying well no no don't worry one time i did this oh yeah do you know what story <laughs> i'm talking exactly about exactly the story was this one of your first restorations so it, it wasn't actually a restoration it was a, a 68 gt350 convertible and uh it was i want to say it was a black car but anyway um the guy asked us to put a paxton supercharger on it 
so we put the Paxton supercharger on it. Chris and I are, you know, playing with it that night, getting it all running and everything. And uh, at the old, the first shop, which was an industrial unit, there was just a laneway out back. There was a guardrail real tight. Like you had to do a three-point turn to get it in the bay door. Mm-hmm. So we pull it out, fire it up, you know, just running great, doing everything the way it should. And then I go to step on the gas, and what happened was, so now I'm pointing down this alleyway with guardrail on one side, and there's a guy um, working on his car. And he ends up, he was an illegal immigrant because he was working for Nabali next door, the machine shop. <laughs> so he's working on his car next door, or, you know, I don't know, three bays down. So it sputters a little as we're running it and I've got it in drive, but I guess what happened is second I put it in drive, the linkage bound up a little, it sputters a little. So I give it a little gas to keep it running, you know, and the throttle sticks wide open just because of the the way it had bound up. Yeah. So the throttle is wide open. (laughs) I'm doing doing a burnout. This guy (laughs) is working on the car. He launches over the car like Bruce Lee. I'll never forget the look in his eyes. They were like big as saucers. He launches over the car like Bruce Lee. And and I'm, there wasn't enough room for the car between the guardrail and this other car. Right. So I'm just augering through the car and the guardrail like... Finally, the throttle shut, still hung. Oh. Throttle hung wide open. Finally, reached down for the key, and I'm wedged between the cars. The guy comes up <laughs> from the other side of the car. I mean, he's leapt over the car now, and uh, we're like, "Oh shit!" And we're supposed to deliver the car that day, the next day. It was oh. supposed to go on the transport to a guy in Edmonton. We sold it to. So I call up the guy in Edmonton, and I said, "Listen, here's what happened." Yeah, you know, I said it's cosmetic stuff it's you know the front headlight buckets the front fenders the doors are okay you know we knocked the side scoops off the quarter panels yeah and uh and i said i'll either send you all your money back or you know fix it whatever you want Mm. and the guy wanted a red car so he said if you paint the car red i'll still take it okay so we fixed the car painted the car red and you know and, and i'll never forget mom yeah. Your, your mom, Vic, and I were going out for dinner that night, and, uh, uh, you know, it was like, all right, get a good bottle of wine. This is going to be, I need something to drown my sorrows <laughs> yeah. in this one. <laughs> you do a free restoration here. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, where we left off was you had just kind of um, decided you were going to build a shop, sold all your inventory, 90s recession hits, but it doesn't really matter because you don't have any cars and you've got a property that you're living at anyways. Right. Uh, and, you know, I guess just take a step a step back. Because right around when you built that shop, I was born. Just after. So we built that in 90. You were born in 92. Right. Yeah. So, you, But you had essentially almost 10 years had a running start at a business. At, at so it was only five years. Five when years. We moved. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Right. But... You know, in university, you're still hustling cars. Oh, yeah, and, and, sure. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Ten years of hustling cars. Yeah. How much do you attribute your success to, you know, you look at kids so much nowadays and, or or anyone, you know, how much do you tr- attribute your, your success to knowing what you wanted to do kind of as you were, you know, you're all of your 20s? Well, so in high school, I always said I didn't want to work on cars for a living. I didn't think there was 
enough money in it. Right. And I actually wanted to be an architect and didn't get in. Mm. So um, I didn't really know I wanted to do it for a living. Mm. But by the time I was 21 is when we kind of made the decision, okay, we're going to give this a whirl. It's made us decent money sort of doing it on the side. And I loved the cars, mm -hmm. which was key. So knowing I would always do something with cars, you're right, mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, I think if you have a passion, you learn way better than if you don't. Mm -hmm. um, so I knew I wanted to do something or I wanted to have cars in my life as far as a hobby. Right. Can I make a living at it was the big, you know, big question mark. Right. Uh, and I think that once you make a decision that you can make a living at it and you pour everything into it then I think it becomes a lot easier. So yeah, it helps to have a focus early on. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just getting that head start. I think it doesn't matter. You could you could have that same focus when you're 30, sure. 40, 50, 60. Mm -hmm. And if you're passionate about it, I think you can learn very quickly mm. compared to if you're just doing it as a job. Right, right. And then, so in 92... How much did having kids change the way you went about working or your mindset for for the business, um, if at all? I don't think anything. Yeah. Um, I think that uh, I think I was lucky in having a wife that understood, you know, her job. And I hate to say it that way, but her job was to look after the kids, look after the house and do all that. And, you know, Vic gave up, gave up her job to yeah. do that. Um, when doing all the books. And yeah. And, and that allowed by her kind of working for me now and doing the books and, and making sure that life was simple on the home front mm -hmm. allowed me to focus on work. And then one of the other things that I think helped tremendously was the fact that the house and the shop were together. And that's that's a good and a bad. It can be fabulous in the sense of, you know, you're always there, it's nice and easy and it's handy. Mm -hmm. But the downside is you're always there. It's nice and easy and it's handy for everybody. Right. Yep. But I think that, you know, that distinction, I think it's I think it's more of a uh, a positive now because whether you live close to work or not now, you're always at work if you want to be on your cell phone. Sure. Like anyone yeah. can be, right? Yeah. yeah. Whereas and all it's done now is delete your commute. Right. And even then we had the shop phone would ring into the house. Right. And, you know, you grew up and, yep. and you know, your mom used to say, do you think we should have it ring in the house? I said, ah, they'll get used to it. It's not a problem at all. And you would just sleep right through it. Yeah. You know, and that's, you know, it was funny early on because Massenburg, Paul, who we met through racing. Yeah you know, tried ringing us. And I think it was like a Christmas day or Christmas Eve. And, you know, Vicky's saying, are you going to answer that? And I go, yeah, somebody might want a late, you know, Christmas present for somebody. Of course I'm going to answer it. Yeah. And he tried just for fun. <laughs> just to see for if, fun. To what see are you doing you... answering the phone? <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. That's funny. So at that time, when I was very young, you changed the name of the shop. Right. From the Shelby shop to legendary motor car. Right. Why? Um, multiple reasons, but the, you know, the last straw that broke the camel's back was Carol Shelby sending me a letter. And at first I thought, boy, I get this letter from Carol Shelby. He must be telling, you know, thinking I'm doing a great job, you know, selling Cobras and Shelby's and stuff. <laughs> yeah. But it was a cease and desist or pay him 10%. 
Really? 10% yeah. is what 10%. he wanted? 10%. Yes. So he made you an offer. He made an offer, <laughs> that, you know, either you cease or desist or you pay 10% type thing. So, it, and we'd already started to get pigeonholed a little bit into people thinking all we did was Shelby's, mm. which was the negative of having a single brand to your name. And we, you know, we restored Corvettes and we did Camaros and all sorts of different muscle cars and even some European stuff. You know, I don't know if you remember the early showroom. There was a boxer there and there yep. was an mm-hmm. NSX and, you know, a bunch of early stuff. Um, so the next name had to be something generic mm-hmm. that would kind of typify what we would sell, but it, I didn't want anybody having a preconceived idea. So I wanted it where if you were into Packards, you would think, oh, a legendary motor car, they sell Packards or mm. Duesenbergs or Ferraris and Maseratis or, you know, Cobras or whatever you were into, you would associate legendary with that brand. Right. Yeah. Right. When did you, what exposed you to kind of that pre-war stuff? Because when I was younger, you had you had a few of those cars around. Was it just going to auctions and seeing there was money in it? Or did you start to appreciate those cars? Um, it was really a guy named Jim Miller. Right. And uh, Jim was a mentor, for sure. He passed away a lot of years ago now of, of cancer. Um, and he was definitely a mentor and he was really the guy I would say that got RM Rob into classic cars as well. Really? So he was an antiques dealer, but loved classic cars and had a place in Baden about halfway between Rob and I. And, uh, he, he you know, he would always say, oh, you know, you should have these old ones. And the, you know, there was a lot of history there and this and that. And so one day he came out and uh, it was a Stutz, a 29 Stutz dual cowl that he was trying to sell. And I knew nothing about the cars. And he says, listen, the only way to learn is to own it, experience it, you know, the whole Good thing. Good salesman. Oh, great. He was a <laughs> master salesman. He, he was great. And uh, uh, so anyway, we'd talked for about a half hour. And uh, I forget, forget, I forget the numbers, but let's just say he wanted 100. And I said, ah, I would probably buy it at 80 type thing. Mm-hmm. And then uh, he said, listen, I'll give you a buyback. You know, if you pay more, uh, you know, you'll take a 10 grand hit and you'll have a guaranteed number. Okay. All right. So I said, I don't know. I think 80 is all of it and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, he was working for his 100. So anyway, as we're going out the door, he turns around, shakes my hand and says, done, 80 grand. And I'm like, ah. I didn't know what I bought. Right. You know, I didn't have a clue. I hadn't seen it. Nothing. So, and Jim says, don't worry, you know, you, you got a 10, 10 grand penalty if you want to sell it back. Yep. So, and it was a good learning experience because if you own the car, you really get to, one, you do your homework afterwards, sometimes afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, you try and do it before, but in this case it was afterwards. And you get to see how special the cars are and what they're all about. And, uh. So anyway, I struggled to sell that car, and I'll never forget, we had a, that cruise auction in Indiana, and uh, Jim was, like, circling like a vulture. I couldn't sell it. Goes yeah. across the block, nobody on it. I'm trying to sell it in the park, not in the parking lot, but in the corral. corral or whatever they called it. Nobody on it, and it's like the last day, you know, sales over, say, at 5 o'clock, and there's Jim, ready to take your 10 grand pill? Yeah. And uh, I wasn't quite ready. And this guy walks over. He had just bought the Stutz factory and was converting it, turning it into condos and a workspace and stuff. And he said, 
this would be perfect for in the lobby of my Stutz factory I just bought, paid full pop. Oh my goodness, did Jim witness this? Did, Jim didn't, but he came around like yep. you know an hour later and we're loading up the car and Davey's gonna take it down to the guy's factory like right there and then. And Jim's, Jim's like shaking his head. He says, you got horseshoes up your ass. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> that's funny. How did you meet Jim, just at, at, at auctions? Yeah, probably at auctions, and and then we'd you know we'd bunk together when we we're you know going to auctions, and mm-hmm. there was you know me the goofy newfie and Jim and uh, Trenholm and that, and it was hilarious. We, you know we'd we'd have you know one room or two rooms depending how many guys, and we'd have dinner every night. But it was uh, it was a lot of fun. It mm. was you know the early years of anything almost are more exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. You. Uh so you've bought and and sold uh just a few antiques kind of probably through Jim throughout the years right but uh the one collection that i remember when we were young was you had bought a whole ton of artifacts that that like really belonged in a museum mm-hmm. what, how did that deal come about so that guy called me um out of the blue and said I have a bunch of cars and some antiques. And I said, well, what are the cars? And he said, well, the ones I have left was a Ferrari Dino and a Corvette. And uh, and I forget what year, like a 67 or something. So, and they were about five grand under the money. Like there was profit in them instantly. Hmm. So I jumped in the truck, drove out to London, Ontario, and uh, he had already sold the Dino. Like hmm. literally it was gone already. So I I took the uh, the Corvette, and then he said, "Do you want to do anything with the antiques?" And I don't know, you know. What were they? Um, there was a, well, we go in, and and yep. he he uh, lifts the cover off this pine coffee table, but it was a glass coffee table, and it looked like it was built like last week. And I said, "I'm not interested in that." He says, "No, no, you know, dummy, it's the eggs in the coffee table, and they were dinosaur eggs." And then he had. Uh, the first um, thing that basically had wings, uh, Confucius or Ornus Sanctus or something. It okay. was he had, had all these names for the stuff. He had a uh, saber-toothed tiger skull that was basically 100% intact. So a lot of times they kind of make some of the bones to make right. a, a complete skull, but it was a really good piece. And then this woolly mammoth tusk and a bunch of these fossils and you know these things that were, I don't know how many, billion years old and stuff so uh and i had no idea what it was but jesus stuff looks cool and i says what do you want for it and he says i don't know you know 50 grand or whatever the number was so it seemed cheap enough it seemed like but i knew nothing about it right so i called uh pinball louis who called billy jameson who had bought the niagara falls museum the contents right and uh and i told him about you know what i was buying and he says i don't know you can't get hurt on it Type right. thing, and then I ended up selling all of it in one shot to Dan Warner and made a good profit on it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, because I remember when we were young, you had like literally we had like the dinosaur eggs were super cool. You had the coffee table with the dinosaur eggs, yep. and you have buddy over from school in grade one like, <laughs> dinosaur eggs and then you had this woolly mammoth tusk behind the couch that yeah. was just kind of behind the couch there yeah 
It's ridiculous. <laughs> and all, all of those things hung up on the, the wall by the fire. It was like a museum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Couldn't throw a ball in that room, no. that's for sure. <laughs> huh. Huh. Um, I feel like that, uh, you know, when we started, we, I mean, me and Ryan started buying and selling cars when we were 15, 16, all the way until now you've always had in the back of your mind what happened with the 90s recession and mm-hmm. saying it can happen again, it can happen again. I, have I beat that in your head well, too yeah, much? Well, <laughs> yeah, but not too much. I, we might be on the verge of something here. But how much did that you know, make you a conservative business person, seeing that kind of firsthand and, and dodging that bullet? A lot. Mm. Um, when the market had gone so crazy, and I always use that Ferrari 4Cam as the example. Yeah. And it was $85,000 in 85. At the very peak in 90, it was a million five. And then I bought one and restored it and sold it at uh, Rob's Auction in Toronto here when we were doing the TV show. It was on a season for 305000 in 2000 right so it went from a 85 to a million five the market the bottom fell out of the market in 90 the stuff was sale proof it didn't matter everybody was behind you know they, they would chase the market down and a prime example was i don't know if you remember there's mom's probably got a picture of when we brought you home from the hospital in 92 mm-hmm so in 1990 was the peak of the market, and even 328 Ferraris, and 89 was the last year of those, a, a customer of ours had bought two and parked those cars and as a collector's item. So they had, I don't know, 300 miles and 800 miles, whatever it was. It was under 1,000 miles, and he'd parked them as an investment. Right. And in 90, I, I want to say, and I'm pretty sure my numbers are relatively accurate, uh, list price was called at $80,000. Uh, I offered him 160 for each car, and he said, wow. "No, no, 200 grand is what it takes." And you got to remember, everything was over list price and for uh, each individual each car, indi- and it was way over list price. Quintashes yep. were double list price. Testarossas were like way over list price, like it is now, like it is now, mm-hmm. and maybe not where it's double list, but it's certainly well over list. Right, and uh, and then I remember. Him saying, no, no, 200 grand is what it takes. And then about two months later, he called me up. I'll take your 160. And I said, no, the market's changing. I'll give you 140. Right. Long story short, two years later, I bought the pair of cars for 160. We chased the market all the way down. Every time he'd, you know, get comfortable with my offer, the market had moved down further. Right. I said, no, market's changing. You know, and I would always say, hey, my offer is good today, not three months from now. Right. You know, and everything was going down. The real estate was going down. The cars were going down. It was a pretty major drop in cars. Right. All the way until when? Kind of 2000 and... Well, what happened was is in, in, you know, between 90 and 93, the cars just wouldn't sell. Like right. Auction sales rates were 50%. Right. You know, th- nowadays it's 90%, 80, 90, 100% auction rates. Right. Back then it was down to 50%, 40%. So the stuff just didn't sell. There was right. no buyers for it. Right. 
Um, and I would say that there was no buyers. And then it kind of bottomed out, you want to say, mid-90s. And then it just stayed there mm-hmm. for years and years and years. Right. And then it became stable. You could do business again. Yeah. Hmm. And then, you know, you look at, at a 250 GTO Ferrari. What was that worth in 2000? Boy, I, I I don't know exact numbers, but I want to say eight grand, eight million. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's gone, you know, whatever. To Seventy million. Seventy more. million. Yeah. And now you had the, you know, the SLR um, sell for a hundred and forty plus million. Right. Yeah. Do you see those prices coming down, or will or cars like that people just won't sell? I think really special cars that are truly almost impossible to replicate or duplicate the deal Mm -hmm. and that's why the Benz did so well in my mind I mean they'd they'd owned the two cars since 56 since the accident yeah yeah, at uh, at Le Mans so those cars have never been for sale they've you know there hasn't been a car like it that has been sold so you could say yeah you know some of the other SLRs, the Roadsters would be comparables or the W196 of Fangio's, but that was a single uh, seater car, Yeah, you know, would be comparable. But there's nothing exactly the same that is ever sold. Yeah. So hard to put a number on that. Right, right. So to come, go back to the business, you're, you're kind of plugging away, you work through the 90s. Um, is there a, do you sit down and create a, a vision or are you just kind of head down buying and selling cars, doing Seat restorations? Pants always. Right, yeah. right. Now, in the early 2000s, you stumble your way into a TV show. Yeah. How did that come about? Um, so that was, there was two guys, uh, Dan Woods, and I forget the other guy's name now, because Dan Woods went on to have a, another show. Um Anyway, Dan Woods was the host, and the other guy was um, the producer. Mm-hmm. And they had a deal with Speed Vision, and Speed Vision had just fired up. Right. So they came in the shop, and they said, uh, you know, do you want to do a one-minute segment, a pro buying tip on what you should be looking for if you're buying a collector car? So we did a one-minute segment, and I had good feedback. Mm. And the first year, the, the premise was still they're going to restore a car over the 13 episodes. And at the end of it, they get a free car, basically. But they were going from, you know, Joe Blow's body shop to this guy's chrome shop to this guy's engine shop. And those guys had businesses to run. Right. So they go show up with the camera and car's not been worked on, nothing happening. And oh, they were getting the work done for free. Correct. Right. That was part of their business model. So they'd show up for a shoot day and there was nothing. Nothing nothing to shoot, nothing right. to do. And so anyway, they didn't finish the rest though on that first season. They kind of cheated it out. Yeah. And the next season is when I said, let me do the restoration. Yeah. I'll make sure that it's, you know, organized, ready to go. And they wanted to do 26 episodes that next season. Wow. And, uh, so we did, maybe it was, uh, I can't remember if it was first the Camaro that we did or the 4Cam. And that's because the, the last um, episode of that, that season, we auctioned it off, no reserve. Yep. And it was a big deal, but it was kind of the hook to get people to watch the whole season. And Skip Barber ended up buying that car. Oh, okay. Yeah. 
uh, huh. at the end of that season. So then after that, uh, and that was what year 2000, 2001, two, one, two, somewhere okay. in around there. And then, uh, Tom came on. And so Tom and I were hosting it because, uh, the two guys had, you know, a falling out and the one guy got the show and Dan Woods, uh, didn't. Right. So now he needed a host as well as a co-host and a restoration thing. So Tom and I got together, we were co-hosting the show and that guy wasn't a great business guy. Um, you know, he was behind on some payments and this and that. So bottom line is we ended up, uh, buying the show from him mm. and would cover his debts and all that sort of stuff. And then we had one year left on the contract with Speed Vision. Right. And uh, so we kind of took it over and owned it. Right. Yeah. And did you guys sit, and then you ran it for what? 10? Uh, we did 11 seasons of Dream Car and yeah. then three seasons of Sports Car that were kind of in, in there. Yeah. And then we did a bunch of um, specials. You know, we did the Corvette special on the race car. We did the shootouts. We did the Super Cuda. Mm -hmm. um, and then, uh, you know, we did, I forget how many shootouts where we would take different cars from an era and do a bunch, bunch of different tests, drag racing and stopping and slalom and burnout, yeah. burnout contest. Burnout contest. Yeah. yeah. No, I remember that. Yeah. And that was really though the heyday for, for car shows. That was, was the, the beginning. The beginning of car shows. I guess, yeah, yeah. The heyday was probably a little bit later when everyone gas monkey garage and all that stuff. But you were you were kind of riding the wave of the Orange County Chopper no, era. We were way before Orange really? County Chopper. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, no, it was the opposite. Um, we were right at the beginning of that okay. thing. And then Orange County Choppers came out. And how much did you, how, how did it affect your business? Um. It's always a double-edged sword. So it, it definitely affected it in a positive way. Mm -hmm. The negatives are people know who you are, so it's harder to buy. Right. Um, the positives are people know who you are, so you know they, they also know to look for you. But the key in my mind to you know doing well in the collector car business is having inventory. Right. You, you can't sell from an empty wagon and you could have, like I looked at guys, well, take Orange County Choppers or, you know, some of the other shows out there. They struggle to monetize, you know, their, their core uh, business. Yeah. Their core business with the show. And sometimes it almost goes the opposite where it hurts their core business. Like, uh, you know, Boyd Coddington's deal. I, and I don't know if it did or didn't, but it looked like he had a great reputation as a hot rod builder. Yep. And then typical of TV, and it was Orange County Choppers that really started that, you know, throw the wrenches, yelling at your kids, you know, yep. the drama. And I think they pushed that through that shop. And they, you know, they sometimes tried to push it through here and say, hey, we need more drama. We need more of this. And I just refused to do it. And I think that some of the shows that did it, it hurt their their core business. And that's really, you know, that's really what's going to live on. Mm -hmm. The shows will last, you know, we had a long run at, you know, 11 years and then whatever, 20 years total. Yeah. So lots of times the shows don't last five years. Right. Type thing. Um, so I think the focus needs to be on the core business and you're using the TV as promotion for your core business. Right. 
right? Because I mean, yeah, you look at, you know, right now, everyone will create content and put it out on their social media. But what you were doing is essentially that, but putting it out on that, right. on the TV Before network. social media. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And it may also makes for evergreen content, you know, in the fact that you could take one of your shows from 2003 and we could chop still it up. still in and, syndication and, now too. Yeah. Yeah. And, and use it because yeah. it's not, you know, it's very dated if you're, you're yelling at each other and, you know, that reality TV has right. changed. Right. To... Uh, stuff like this where podcasts where people are just craving real authenticity right and, and you had that from the beginning right and that was you know the reality tv thing i think people now finally really understand that it is i, I don't want to say scripted but it's it's thought out right it's not the way we used to do it where literally we would show up and and you know when we showed up at earnhardt's place yeah. what are we doing I don't know. So you guys got invited down to DEI, Dale Earnhardt's shop. Yep. And did did it like it was one of Dale's guys invited you down or No, Dale was up at uh, the Oshawa plant for some GM promo thing. Tom wrote for the Toronto Star as well as a writer. Okay. All right. And Tom was there covering it for the Toronto Star. Yeah. And Earnhardt came up to Tom and said, hey, guys, you know, or, hey, Tom, really like your show. Love to be on it sometime. So Tom comes back wow. to the shop and he says, you'll never believe what happened. Earnhardt wants to be on the show. And I'm like, bullshit. He says, you know, call him up yourself. So I'm like. He no. had the number. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. figuring he's, you know, he's got a it's buddy. A prank. It's yeah. a prank. <laughs> yeah. I call him up. Whoa. There's Dale on the other end. Uh, yes, sir. We'll be down. <laughs> really? Yeah. So he said. So he was a fan of the show. He was a fan of the show because he and Junior were restoring a '69 Camaro, and it was the year we were doing the Baldwin Motion Car. So he, they were watching the show. So they kind of followed along yeah. a little bit. Yeah. There was some cool segments out of that. You guys, what spent a weekend? We spent uh, probably four days down there. Yeah. And Steve Crisp, who was one of Dale's right hand guys, was just awesome like great guy funny as hell and uh you know he 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 made it really simple to be comfortable there mm. and uh it was it was an interesting four days or three days we had down there how much that was your first time i probably walking through a cup shop yeah how much did that influence influence you or rub off on you like to how impressive those shops are a, a ton yeah. To the point of, um, so when we built the shop here is right around, just after that. Yeah, 2002, 2001 or two. Right. So I think we were at Earnhardt's in 2001. And literally, when we bought this property, it wasn't zoned yet. It was designated to be zoned. And I remember using the footage of Earnhardt's place in Mooresville, and it was like the Taj Mahal. I mean, it was massive marble granite floors, spectacular, right? Like spectacular. It, and it was, you know, the um, centerpiece of NASCAR. Mm. It was just unbelievable. So I used all of that footage, went into the mayor here, 
yeah. and said, this is what I want to build. I fibbed a little bit like, <laughs> by about <laughs> tenfold. Yeah. Not building DEI. <laughs> a used car salesman. So, <laughs> so I told them, this is what I want to build. It'll be a tourist attraction. We'll have, you know, this showroom and a working facility. But that really inspired, you know, doing epoxy floors in the back and mm. making it neat and organized and really changed, um, you know, like I wanted to do it one up from what people were used to in restoration shops. Right. And I think he inspired me a whole ton to just take it to another level. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and like I said, that footage, yep. we, we put together a five minute clip of DEI and said, this is what we're going to build here in Halton Hills. And we got permits to do it before we should have. Um, and I mean, it was 20 years ago. And I, I, you know, I think of if only, you know, politicians and bureaucrats could look at it and say, this is a good thing for the community. This is a good thing for the tax base, you know, and just let things happen. Like I always say there, if there was a common sense department, mm. you know, in some of these bureaucratic thing or even just one common sense officer mm. that would help a ton yeah yeah, yeah and for it sure. happened that the mayor was the common sense officer right yeah right because yeah you'd be crazy to not have an attraction like that in your town well especially when you know five years later it's it's going to happen anyway and all around us you can see what's happened it's right you know we were just the first guys here we were early right yeah so you were out of space again at the shop you built in 90 right and one line over, there was a house and just a field beside it that yep. wasn't zoned for what you wanted to do. And you yep. just, there was 20 acres. And I remember the, uh, there was an ad in the, uh, local newspaper mm -hmm. and it said future industrial house for sale. And, uh, and I remember driving by it and go, what kind of idiot would buy Yep. You know, that house in an industrial, when it's going to be an industrial park 10 years from now. And then, Two years later, I'm knocking on the door and I became the idiot that wanted to buy it. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. So was it the same kind of jump again uh, as far as financial, like a financial stretch to build this building? Well, do you remember what I yeah. used to tell you? Yeah. What did I used to tell you? Well, if things don't work out, we'll be, at least we'll be together, but we'll be in a cardboard box. <laughs> <laughs> it was a big stretch. Yeah. Yeah. How much did you feel a lot of pressure? Um, yes and no, but I, I mean, I think with everything that, you know, you just know when the timing is right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, especially being a little bit conservative. And again, I think we lucked into the whole deal here. I mean, Milton hadn't exploded yet. The, t the town we're in hadn't exploded yet. Real estate was still relatively inexpensive compared to Toronto. Yep. And, uh, it just made a ton of sense. And again, I think the timing was just shit luck. It worked out really well. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. What are some other, like, there weren't, there weren't that, going back to the show, there weren't that, that many car shows going on at the time. And you guys got to do some really cool stuff. Like everyone really who was in the space knew who you were. You could, from my impression anyways, you could pick up the phone and drive some cool stuff. What are some of like the top two highlights from that show that stick out for you? Um, it was really, really cool. Um, Fred Simeone 
we went down to see his collection and Fred just passed away not that long ago. Uh, but killer I, collection. I think arguably one of the, if not the best sports car, one, certainly one of the top five sports car collections in North America. And I mean, spectacular, the best of the best. And he was a pioneer. I mean, he was collecting the stuff when it wasn't collectible mm. and bought great stuff, had great taste in cars, bought the right stuff at the right time. Um, brilliant guy. And I mean, I, I think he was... Uh, you know, brain surgeon or back surgeon wrote the book on the human spine, like just, mm. but the nicest guy too, you'd walk into his place. And if you were a gearhead, he had all the time in the world for you. Mm. Yeah. Hmm. You guys got to, I can't like looking through the footage. I can't believe some guys would just give you their car and say, go ahead, beat the crap out of it. Like oh, you had burnout competitions on TV with guys, freshly restored cars. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's it was. Uh, I I was shocked myself. Yeah, you know, people would send us their cars to use in the in the you know the muscle car shootouts. Yeah, and uh, and we just pounded the crap out of the guy's car for like two days. Um, it, it was interesting too, but I think people won because of the racing. It helped. They knew that you could drive. Well, I think it helped in the sense of, um, yeah, one, you, you know, you can drive. Two, you're sympathetic to the equipment. Mm. Like, yeah, it's one thing to do a burnout. It's another thing to, you know, do stupid stuff, over-rev a motor, miss a gear, you know, do those sorts of things. Right. You know, far more harmful than just doing a smoky burnout. Yeah. And then um, I think the other thing, too, is they fully trusted that we could fix anything we damaged right and, right you know we never damaged the car which was shocking yeah especially with tom there oh yeah. <laughs> i still remember tom we were down driving a Superbird and a, a hemi cuda and we're going through these roads i want to say it was in the carolinas and uh and you know tom's driving this Superbird, and i'm in the cuda and i'm you know, wheeling it a little bit for the camera in front, you know, trying to get it to move around a little bit. Yeah. And Tom doesn't realize, that, well, he does realize, but, you know, forgets about the car is like a thousand pounds heavier. It's just an ocean liner. And I thought he was going to go through the fence. I mean, he came so close <laughs> to the fence at the side of the road. Yeah. And he's just like locked up, wheel turned, pushing right for the fence and the last second turned it, you know, so it was... uh that was probably the closest we huh. had. Yep. So you you now, 2001, 2002, you built this shop. Yep. You're back buying and selling cars. Um, we talked in the previous episode how you were racing. You definitely weren't racing at this time. You were kind of taking some time off during that. But then you bought a Trans Am car. So that, that was, let me get the order of this right. Uh, I want to say that was when I first started racing wasn't long after that I bought the Trans Am car. So just before you were born, I did the driving school. Yeah. And uh, Mike Douglas got me hooked on racing, and yeah. then I bought the Shelby, built the Shelby, and then uh, built the first Corvette, and yeah. then wanted to go Trans Am racing. Yeah. Because uh, you ran in the early 2000s. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it was when you got here. No, right. no, no, no. It yeah. was, that was This was in the 90s. You were still, because when Gagliardo got killed at Mostport. That was 2002. You were here. 
I remember the Fox body car getting delivered here with the Tide suit. No. Yeah, that's it 2002. Then? 2001 to at most port was when he got killed. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that's a big jump, though, as far as racing goes. Right. To go from kind of recreational vintage racing to professional sports car racing. Right. That was hilarious. That, that, uh, like you just, what, you bought a Trans Am car and said you were going to do it. I bought a car from a guy in New Mexico, and uh, it was a Roush car, and I forget, what, I think it was chassis 13 or 14. But it was an old car. It That's, was an old car. Yeah. And then it had the Fox body, like you said, and uh, went to Genelosi and bought his prototype body that was heavy, but it was a Jag body, so it looked current. Right. And we didn't have a clue about professional racing. I mean, we'd vintage raced, and that was it. Yeah. And uh, so... Our first race is at Road America, and again, we don't... We, the motor that we had in that car was a motor that Active Engines built on the TV show. So it was this, you know... I mean, they built good motors, sure. but it wasn't a oh. Trans Am motor. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it wasn't a Roush motor or yeah. anything like that. And... Uh, guys from Oakville down the road. Uh, right. Know they built my Trans Am yeah. motor. And uh, so we go to that race, but uh, I just bought the trailer... Right. And I didn't have a truck license yet, uh, like an AZ license. And I won't mention any names, but a good customer uh, had the ability to get me licensed. He knows who he is. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> had the ability to get me licensed. And, uh, you know, I did a very short course. I go down to Penske, rent a rig from Penske. Yep. And I've never driven a tractor before in my life. Now, this is in the old days when yeah, you could yeah, do yeah. this. Yep. And uh, so I'm learning to drive. Truck and, and trailer. And, and who's your, your crew? Like, so how the, many guys do you bring crew, to crew, mid-Ohio for a Trans Well, it was Road America. Or Road America. Yeah. So it was uh, Lou and Bob. So and Bob's, Bob's an electrician. <laughs> Lou was uh, working at a tire store at the time. Yep. And, uh, and Lou's still here today. He's an awesome mechanic, but, you know, he was working at a tire store then. And myself. Uh, you Big know, team. a used car. Yeah, used car salesman. <laughs> So, uh, but the funniest thing is driving, learning to drive the rig on the way to the race and losing the top bunk. And we're, uh, we're coming up to this bridge, going through construction in Chicago, coming up to a bridge and Lou leaps from the top bunk. He says, I don't think we're going to clear the bridge. <laughs> <laughs> How tall is this? I don't know. <laughs> so anyway, we get there. It was an Indy car weekend. And this is in, in Trans Am when you had to qualify. There was 40 some odd cars there. Just to make the race. Just to make the race. And uh, I'm trying to wheel it in this parking spot. And they're like, you know, two inches wide your spots to get in like between the rigs and i'll never forget it was mike davis was beside us and he uh he owned boris said's car and mike used to race and uh so i'm trying to get it in the hole there and i'm struggling and I, yeah. his truck driver was going boy you're an embarrassment to the truckers and I said, <laughs> says how long you've been driving that rig for and i go oh, about 10 hours now yeah and uh and he, he thought I was kidding. So anyway, he helps me. He's guiding me in the hole, finally get in the hole. And he's he's just giving me shit. I'm a useless truck driver. Right. And then uh, the next morning, we're warming up the car for first practice. And I got my suit on. And I'm sitting in the car. And that truck driver comes over. Boy, <laughs> don't tell me you're driving this too. How long you been driving these for? And I said, first time, just like the truck. <laughs> <laughs> and he thought we were crazy, which we were. <laughs> Do you qualify for the race? So qualified like, uh, I don't know, 30-something. So you made the race. Made the race. 
And Kenny Wilden was running for, I forget, Durhog, I think, at the time. And Durhog was the guy that did all the gears for the Wiseman transmissions. Okay. And uh, Kenny comes over and we go, I think we got the gears wrong. Like, it's just wrong everywhere. So we tell him what gear ratios we have. And he goes, yeah, you got pit gear right and everything else is wrong. So we buy some gears or Kenny gets us some gears from Durhog. Um, we put them in that night. And it was pretty easy training to work on the Wiseman because it just had two shafts and it was, we just lined them up. Anyway, so we go out, uh, do the race. There's some carnage, first race, finish 14th and, you know, pull it in, uh, pull it into the pit. And, uh, there's that truck driver and we're 14th and, you, you fin know, finish 14th, finish 14th in the race. Probably paid. It, it did. Yep. It did actually. And, uh, and, uh. You know, the truck driver's shaking his head and he says, boy, I can't believe you guys are crazy out of Canada. <laughs> <laughs> it was you, good. That's funny. And I, I was kind of too young. I remember I went to the Mostport race. Yeah. Tell me about that one. So that was shortly after. Uh, so the Road America race was the first race. And I think Mostport was maybe the second or third race. We did Cleveland as well. And... Uh, I qualified in between Gagliardo and Longo mm -hmm. and I broke a lash cap on my active engines motor yeah. and I was pissed I phone up my guy ah, says I don't have anything so I can't race and in uh, qualifying you broke it broke it in qualify just after like yeah in qualifying and uh so anyway I think we're 18th or something and uh one was right in front one was right behind and at the beginning of the race Gagliardo came off of one, got sideways in the track, and Longo T-boned him, and Gagliardo died, and Longo broke his neck. And it was the one time you guys were right there, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, Mom was there, and it was the one time she was like, mm, I don't know about this racing, because it yeah. was close to home then. Like, you know, you guys saw what happened, and it was it was a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was in between corner one and two there. Yeah. I remember that yeah. pretty vividly. Yeah. You had one other race there, and not to linger on your Trans Am career too long, but you had one other race. It rained, and you guys were running like fifth we, or sixth we were or something. Running really good at Cleveland. That was the other race, and it rained, and we had the rain tires on. We're making great time. We come in, it starts to dry up, and uh, we come like, in. What are you, wait, hang on. What are you thinking as you come in with two guys in the pits that you're going to well, change under green? You're going to... I think it may have been, yeah. I don't know what it was. So anyway, <laughs> the, like we should have stayed, just stayed on the reins. But we come in they, and we didn't put any C's on the single, uh, you know, it was a single uh, spinner on the thing. So we couldn't get them off. The wheels. Yeah. yeah. And we didn't have the big gun. Right. You know, like, you know, all the the big stuff we couldn't get the wheels off and literally we sat in pit lane couldn't get the last wheel off the stupid car oh. <laughs> like a bunch of idiots <laughs> yeah that's funny yeah huh and then uh to go to continue on with your racing you 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 cut you were hooked at on racing at this point I was hooked from the first ride but, at Watkins Glen. Okay, but yeah. now now you're kind of the business is going. You're able to to kind of race, pick and choose races throughout the summer that you want to do, without stressing too much financially. You can you can do some racing. Uh, yeah. yeah. So the, the the racing really started in the '90s, right? Okay, and then uh, let's just say finished around 
right after Trans Am, basically, and you guys were go-kart racing. Right. And then I stopped racing for probably six or seven years. Yep. Um, it just too busy with you guys racing and that. And then it was literally, I, I vividly remember the year you and Ryan both won the Canadian Nationals. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, I've done my job as a parent. Yep. You're 16, he's 15 or whatever the ages. And, yeah, 13 yeah, or whatever. Yeah. Whatever the ages were. Yeah. And I've done my job as a parent. I'm going racing, you guys are on your own. Yep. And that was sort of the last go-kart race. Yep. That, uh, that you know, you still raced a little bit after, yeah, but looked I did after my, the cart yourself. Yeah. You turned 16 and you could get to the track. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So you built your hot rod, yeah. hot rod car there. And then what inspired you to buy a Pinty's car and race in the Canadian NASCAR series? Just I think, seeing it? I think that was a function of uh, NASCAR buying Cascar. Mm. And uh, Kenny was here at the time uh, running the fab shop. And uh, he'd always <clears throat> had a cast car that he would do some races with. Right. And we just chatted and he says, you should try this, you know, and they have a couple of road races. And uh, so, yeah, hmm. bought an old cast car and converted it and got hooked on NASCAR. Right. <laughs> yep. So how has, I guess, the vision kind of changed for Legendary in the in the past couple years or has it? changed at all well i I think the um the racing thing started out as the demographics were great in svra vintage racing vintage racing yep and then uh the demographics in any race series are great right you go to uh alms or imsa or you know any formula the people there have money right they like cars they like you know, they like racing, but they also like cars. They're your customers. They're the customer. Yeah. And the more we got into racing, the more appreciation I had for historic race cars. Mm. And when you look at it today, you know, the, the most valuable cars by a long shot mm. are historic race cars. Hence the SLR at 140 million, GTOs at 70 million, and all the way down. They right. are by far the most expensive, most significant cars. Um, so it all works together really well. And I think that, again, coming back to having a passion for racing lets you learn about historic race cars, about modern race cars, and uh, it just it just sort of happens organically mm. where you start buying and selling race cars. Right. So do you think going forward, because it, and I completely agree, obviously seeing it from the inside, you know, with all that kind of post-war European sports racing car stuff is really the pinnacle of sure. cars as, yep. as a, as a asset class. That's where all the expensive cars are really. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's all these big historic events. Do you see going forward, trying to move more and more into that space, like trying to go to Goodwood with a car every year, trying to be at these historic races and compete and, and rub shoulders with those guys over in Europe or in Laguna Seca? For sure. And, you know, that was part of the reason we're going to do Goodwood in, you know, a couple of weeks from now. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, really excited about doing it. We did that members meeting as a warm up mm-hmm. and just blown away by how 
race crazy Europeans are, Brits are, uh, and and at a different level. I don't want to say on a different level. They just take it. They're more aggressive over there, mm. especially uh, you know than the West Coast racers compared to East Coast racers compared to European racers, and I think it's just a, a different sort of mindset mm. where. Um, you know, even European restorations, I want to say, and I'm, I'm using a, a broad brush here. Sure. On average. Yeah. They're more into making the cars work, less about making them into jewelry. Mm. Uh, you, you know, when they do a restoration and when they have shows, it's, it's more about that. Um, and I kind of appreciate they want to make them work, which right. is, is what cars are all about. Mm-hmm. It's not just a the visual it's also the experience of you know the sight the sound the feel um the handling and all of those things right do you have uh you know if you could own any cars say you say i gave you a 10-year horizon if you could own any car you know falling into one of those kind of race car categories what would it be still the daytona coupe Daytona Coupe. Yeah, I missed it at a million. I missed it at four million. I missed it at seven million. It's many multiples of that today, but it's just it's been on the list mm-hmm. since the beginning, and um, I just think it's a cool story. You know, them winning the manufacturer's championship, winning Le Mans, just that whole Ford versus Ferrari story. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's really good that it's been told, right? Because I think from a North American point of view. That'll never be duplicated. When you have a guy that wins Le Mans as a driver in the Aston, wins as a manufacturer with the Daytona Coupe, and wins as a team owner with Ford with the GT40s, you know, is pretty spectacular, and it just will never happen. It's happened once, and it won't ever happen again. Right. So that, that is the peak Shelby car in your mind. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That and now... You know, I would say the Ken Miles car, because it's part Daytona Coupe, has, you know, the chassis is basically a Daytona Coupe chassis. That motor was in one of the Daytona Coupes, and it's a prototype engine, and it is the fastest, best handling Cobra I think they ever built. Right. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, I got one final question for you. Do you have, um, you know, do you have advice for young guys uh, who want to, or well, maybe a few questions, but young guys or, you know, even, even guys my age or even older who want to start a business? Do you have advice for them, even if they don't know exactly what, they, what kind of business they want to start, but they have that, that desire? Um, if you can find something that you're passionate about, it's... it's um it makes life so much easier and it's not work. Mm. And I think that's number one. Having said that, I don't think that everybody can find something they're passionate about that they can make a living at. Right. You know, like, um, I guess you could, you know, somebody's made a living at just about anything, sure. everything. So I guess that's not a hundred percent true, but it's just much harder. And I think, and I forget if it was Warren Buffett said it like, Pick something that pays a lot of returns. Okay, you know that that is worthwhile being in business for. Mm. So that's I think half of the battle as well is it's a great thing to be passionate about something, 
But if it doesn't make sense or isn't an, an easy business to make money at, yep. I think that, you know, you're just beating your head against the wall. And, and you can take an example of, um, you know, perfume or, uh, you know, a commodity that is not um, with the margins. So right. if you're going to pick a business, pick the one with a 500% margin. Right. As opposed to the one with a, a 1% margin. Right. To start out. To start out. Yeah. So pick wisely, I think, in the business mm. that you're going to do. And, and again, you know, it's just as easy to sell an expensive car as a cheap car. It's just as much work to spell, sell an expensive car as a cheap car. Mm-hmm. And, and again, maybe the margin isn't quite as big in that expensive car, but the dollars are big enough that it, it justifies it. And I don't think it matters what business you're in, you know, and it's pretty easy to look around and just say, you know, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. What are guys making money in? Mm. You know, uh, what is more profitable than other businesses and, and have a look for profitability as well as what you're passionate about. Right. They have to line up. It makes it way easier if they line up. Right. Right. So, and, and for people who, you know, maybe don't want to run a business because it is, you know, you're taking on a huge amount of risk and, and load. Um, what advice do you have? Because, you know, you became an employer at a young age. Mm-hmm. What advice do you have for people who want to climb the ladder and, and be good employees and be successful there? Well, I, I think with, with anybody that works hard and um, tries Mm. Uh, and I would way rather have somebody that works really hard, tries really hard and is passionate than a guy that has all the skill in the world that you struggle with to get, you know, to work and doesn't care. Mm. And I think caring is a big thing. Like, you know, where, you know, it's funny and I won't use names here, but you know, the guy that comes in Fridays to clean the shop cares about how the shop looks Mm -hmm. he loves making it perfect Mm. and i think sort of being you know uh trying to do your best at whatever job it is when i worked at the minion stores i wanted to be the fastest guy stocking the shelves right all right when i work garbage i wanted to be the fastest guy doing the route and same thing with coke and there's there was incentive because you got to go home right but I also want it to be the fastest guy at every one of those jobs. And it's interesting if, if somebody comes here and I mean, you know, the story of Dave started mopping floors here and he runs the place. Yep. So, you know, if somebody comes here and he's 10% better than all the rest, not a hundred percent, 10% better, he's the first guy you're going to look at. Right. If he's here 10 minutes earlier mm-hmm. than the rest of the guys, and stays 10 minutes later and does 10% better, he's my top guy. Right. Those exponential uh, rewards are just made on the small margins. Small margins make a huge difference. And obviously if the guy, like it's hard to be a superstar and say, I'm going to double everyone else's output. That's not reality. Right. You know, steady, um, you know, going steadily at it, you know, year after year, if you want to make a career with something Mm -hmm. and just giving that 10% more, I think is huge. 
Right. Yeah. Hmm. No, that's a good good place to end it. We've been doing an hour. We'll uh we'll do another one sometime. <laughs> right. Thanks. Thanks. If you enjoyed the podcast, give it a like and share it with some friends. See you guys next week. Bye.